The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I am very honored today to have a very, very special guest, a woman that I've met about a month and a half ago in Pakistan. Um, we are going to ha- entertain a very, very special program that will look at archaeology in the South Asia through the eyes of uh, one of its most distinguished women archaeologists. My guest is Dr. Asma Ibrahim, who is the director of the State Bank Museum and Art Gallery Department in Karachi, Pakistan in which she established the first monetary museum in the country. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim is the director and founding member of the Center for Archaeological and Environmental Research, which is dedicated to the study and long-term preservation of the art and heritage of Pakistan. She has an international profile and has frequently collaborated with a variety of TV stations, including BBC Two, the Discovery Channel, and HBO. HBO. Dr. Ibrahim has carried out excavations in the Indus Delta area in the province of Sindh for several years. She is uh, fluent in seven languages and can read and write a number of others. Uh, it is my honor to welcome you to the program, Dr. Ibrahim. Thank you so much for appearing. Uh, thank you, Joe, for giving me this chance to talk to so many people all over the world. I'm we are thrilled to talk to you. So, I mean, the, the clear uh, lead-in topic, which I'm sure you've been asked many times before, but I think our listenership needs to hear this. What is it like to be uh, the only, probably of a small number anyway, uh, female archaeologists in Pakistan? How did, how did you start on this career, and uh, what were the uh, issues that you had to confront mm-hmm. as you developed into your professional success? Mm, yeah, this is the most uh, frequent question which I've been asked for several years. Um, my passion for archaeology started with, uh, like, I was a graduate student for science. I was studying microbiology, zoology, and chemistry. So in zoology, we study from invertebrates to vertebrates, and uh, it's 
finishes at the evolution of man. So I wanted to know more about the evolution of man, that how all this happened. But being in an um, Islamic country, we were not supposed to talk about it. So my teachers told me just to just shut up. And they said, no, we cannot. If you believe in religion, we cannot answer your questions. So then I was in search of this subject. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have it in our Karachi University. But uh, I took general history. And then in the second year, I took archaeology as a special subject. And uh, that is how I further went into this. Then I wanted to do evolution of man, but didn't get a chance for several years. So in the meantime, I had a chance to do study of points with uh, one of the famous archaeologists of our country, Dr. Dani. So he told me to do the PhD in the meantime till I get the chance to go abroad and study this subject. So I did my doctorate in numismatics, which is uh, the study of points. And my speciality was Indo-Greek coins. Uh, uh, in my thesis, I wrote the history of Greeks in this area, and I discovered the fortress of Alexander the Great during my thesis. And uh, I rewrote the history of Greeks and discovered about 42 uh, descendants of Alexander who ruled in Sin and Balochistan. So this is the first time that the history of Greeks in this area was written and uh, then, uh, in the meantime, I kept trying um, to go for further studies in the, my uh, favorite topic, like evolution of man. Yeah, and during this time, I joined Department of Archaeology and Museums. The first time I went to join the department, I was snubbed by the director general, and he said there's no way that women can join this department. So he sent me back. Then I joined uh, my, I started my career as a journalist and uh, uh, editor, and I wrote two children course books. Uh, one is Social Studies, Book 4, and uh, Book 5, uh, Ancient History. So then again, I went, uh, this post was announced, the Department of Archaeology announced through a newspaper, a uh, post for um, department and museum. So I applied through Federal Public Service Commission. And there again, I faced a lot of um, uh, opposition. Um, there, the director general was there, and they didn't want me in the department. But the Federal Service uh, Commission people were very cooperative, and they appreciated my books, which I had written, and they thought that, I mean, look at this young girl. She has written two cold books, and they were really impressed. So they selected me. But um, because department never liked me, so they posted me in exploration and excavation branch, which is kind of a dungeon and discarded place where we store bones and orchards uh, and all the material which we used to excavate in the department. So that was stored there. So as a punishment, I was sent there for many years and my director never liked me. And he always, every day he used to tell me to go back home and get married. And uh, to get married, I had to sacrifice. When I joined the department, I was about to get married, but then this person told me that I cannot do archaeology, uh, cannot go with foreigners to the field, and so he had, like, he told me to choose one thing, so I thought about it, and I thought that, okay, I cannot give up archaeology, I can give up on him, so I decided not to marry and took this profession full-time, and uh, then you know, kept happening for years, but uh, the turning point was 
1990 when uh, for the first time I requested a department to send me to um, excavations, and this was this has never happened in the department that any woman would go for excavations. So uh, I fought for it, and my director general told me that if you can write a letter of authority for, and get it from your parents, that if anything happened to you, we won't be responsible for you. Oh so I got that letter of <laughs> so I got that letter of authority from my mother, and uh, I went for my first excavations in 1990 in Indus Delta, and which was according to that French lady, which was the toughest excavation of her life. We used to start like at five in the morning for uh, the port where we used to get the boat, and then from that um, with, the, with the boat we used to travel for about four hours to reach the island. And then we used to walk on the mud for about 40 minutes to reach the fortress where we were excavating. So it was like for every day we used to do the same drill, and that was uh-huh. my first excavation. And uh, I survived that. And <laughs> and uh, but the opposition from the department kept uh, going. You know, it was never ending. You know, Asma, there are so many questions that I think our listenership wants to ask you, but I think the most uh, yeah. the most clear-cut question I would have for you, I mean, you're already an established figure in the system. I mean, I met you, you have basically built a museum. I mean, you've done things that, that most people don't do. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, really. in Pakistan, uh, since I, I've been working there for 15 years, I know how difficult this is. I just want to put this question mm-hmm. out to you. What was the most difficult step, if you can identify it, that you had to face in this ascent and in your development of your career? What were the greatest obstacles? Because I hear so many things. Evolution as an Mm. issue, basically, that can be a problem in theology. And then, of course, the status of women and being such a unique individual penetrating through a system that really has so many natural obstacles to it. What, What was the most important or the most difficult challenge that you felt you had? Um, the most difficult, I suppose, uh, the most difficult, well, there were many, but the most difficult, I suppose, was the work on the mummy, which uh, was confiscated by police. And uh, actually, they thought that that's a gold sculpture. And uh, it was under the custody of a very like big and, uh, what can I say, dangerous smuggler. So they confiscated that and they handed over that to me in the National Museum. And uh, police didn't want me to work on that, and the department didn't want me to work on that. And then um, I kept on working for it, like for one year, and I discovered that this is a fake mummy. But being a junior person in the department, nobody would believe me. But BBC people were in correspondence with me for one year, and in the end, they came down and they asked me what you want to do. So they came to Pakistan, and I was excavating in Balochistan at that time. So they asked me what you want to do. So I told them that, listen, I'm a very junior person, and nobody trusts me, and everybody <laughs> wants me to say that this is a real mummy, which was a Persian mummy, and, uh, you know, we never discovered Persian mummies ever. So this Tell was us a, a little bit about the beginning. The Tell huh? us the beginning, the beginning part of the mummy question, because we didn't. I think a lot of people don't know exactly uh, uh, the history of the mummy situation. Just start from the beginning and tell us how this whole mummy situation developed. Yeah, there was. A, I was in the National Museum working as a curator, 
so this call came from the police and they said we have found a mummy and we want to keep it in the national museum i said i thought that they're gone crazy because we don't have mummies in our country so i didn't pay attention but they kept calling me for about 3 days and they said please come to the police station we have got a mummy so in the end i went <laughs> to the police station <laughs> and i saw it they opened the coffin and it was a real mummy so i was also surprised and uh, the police was more surprised because uh, somebody gave them a tip that there is a gold sculpture in balochistan so they thought that they thought that this is a life size sculpture of gold so in that uh, quest they went to balochistan they bought this coffin and when they opened it so there was a live mummy in there and they were also scared they never expected that there would be a mummy so they didn't know what to do so um then i put the uh, air conditioning in police station and you know whatever i could do but from the very first day i knew that she's a fake because it looked like a fake and then secondly we never had mummies in persia so there were a lot of things but then they had a huge press conference and the media from all over the world was there at national museum and they opened the mummy and it was a big scam all over the world so then really? the senior archaeologist yeah it was if you check the newspapers of year 2000 you will find this and tv channels it was all over for a long time and uh, then dr dani who was a very senior archaeologist and my teacher also so he said that it could be real but i was from the very first day i was sure it's not real and uh, there was this fight going on he used to give a statement that this is real and i used to give a statement that i don't agree that this is real so that is how it started and but how do you uh, then, how do you do that yeah. how do you put yourself up against somebody who's a male authority figure in pakistan and say you know what i don't think this is true that must have been a very difficult confrontation oh yes and then the the, the religious factor was there the mullahs uh, you know the clerics of the country they didn't want the dead body outside and they want this to get buried oh. as soon as possible and uh, i had to confront that as well then i had to confront the department of archaeology they didn't want me to work on this oh, there were a lot of confrontations i can't tell you i had such a hard time but uh, you know somehow i got these feelings that this woman is murdered and she needs my help and i wanted to break this uh, chain of the smuggling i heard that there were few more mummies with this person so i didn't want them to keep making these mummies and sell them for profit and the approach metropolitan museum also and miss uh, professor muskarala was in touch with them and um, he said that it could fetch about 1 billion dollars because that was the most rare mummy ever discovered it was wearing a gold mask and there was a chest plate and cuneiform was written over it and um the face mask was also of the gold and the cuneiform was written all over the coffin wooden coffin so it was a very uh, nicely done thing and nobody could doubt that this is a fake so that was the thing but uh, i don't know why i kept fighting for it now when i think of it i don't understand <laughs> but you just I think were it was more so of humanity right yeah i got engaged and then plus i was inquisitive and then it was like a dream come true i always wanted to work on a mummy and i found my own mummy so i 
So how did you Maybe finally disprove it? How did you disprove it? What was the what was the key element that disproved it? Yeah, okay. So I started doing it from, you know, we have two kind of methods, relative dating and scientific. So I started doing uh, the relative dating with the help of uh, the um, artwork which was done on the mummy. And first of all, I taught myself cuneiform writing because this coffin was all over written uh, written by cuneiform. And this was the first ever example of cuneiform on wood. So I was very curious. I taught myself cuneiform. Then I sent these samples, photographs to uh, Italy, where there were there was this uh, Oriental Institute and experts of cuneiform, and one to the London Museum, a British Museum, to Professor Sims William, and like that. And at that time, our computer used to be so slow that. For whole night, I was sending one photograph, and I was taking. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it used to take whole night to send one photograph to my computer, but I kept going, and I, I think BBC people were, uh, you know, amazed by my um, consistency of work, and they approached, me and they said they want to document it. So then everybody in Pakistan, they told me, oh, they will insult the Pakistani scholars, don't work for BBC. But I said, no, but this will be a good thing to bring to to the world that what is going on, they're killing people and converting them into mummies. So that is how then I worked with the BBC and the uh, rest of the project was uh, uh, sponsored by them. And we went for another autopsy and we went for the analysis inside the mummy and uh, 1.1 centimeter uh, CT scan and with the help of which we could tell that it was uh, uh, a murder and she was hit on the neck, a very blunt, blunt blow was on her neck. So this took me about a year or so to work on this and then they documented this whole thing and converted it into a documentary called The Mystery of the Persian Mummy, and which was a big hit at that time. And just after 9-11, it was on air, and they were scared that it will nobody will watch it because 9-11 events were going on all over of the world. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it was on the 17th, and it did a blockbuster uh, business for BBC and uh, then they dubbed it into 10 other languages also. It's a very nicely done documentary, like nice uh, suspense thriller thing. So that's what, and I uh, made a special chamber for it uh, with my own hands. I made a glass chamber for mummy and uh, one pipe would take out the uh, oxygen from that chamber and the other pipe was bringing in nitrogen. Just to keep oh her, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and British Oxygen Company would give me a cylinder every day, free of cost, and then Awa Khan collaborated, free of cost, and they did analysis and CT scans, so people were very uh, encouraging, and they helped me, but the most well, crucial time, is... yeah, why I was telling you this story, yeah, when a BBC people told me that they will bring the forensic pathologist from England, from Sheffield University, they were bringing in for just for a weekend. So we had a meeting with the police, and uh, high officials of police were there, and they said, according to the Constitution of Pakistan, 
male cannot do autopsy on a female body. So this uh, pathologist cannot come. I was so shocked. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to take a break here, but we will be back in very shortly with my okay. very very unique guest and and hopefully my dear friend Dr. Asma Ibrahim right after these words don't go away we'll be right back Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business and more on demand 24/7. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein in another recording of uh, another presentation of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, my very, very special guest is Dr. Asma Ibrahim, the director of the State Bank Museum and Art Gallery at the Department of Archaeology in Karachi, Pakistan. She is the uh, most senior female and possibly the only female archaeologist in the country of Pakistan. Uh, as I know, uh, in discussions that I've had with various colleagues, they all want to know what it is like and how you essentially pioneered the entry 
of, of women and girls into the field of archaeology in Pakistan. Tell us a little bit about what it would be like for a woman or a girl, actually, when she's growing up, to dream of being an archaeologist and how possible it is to realize that, that dream like you did. Uh, well, um, I suppose that now the things have changed being like we are into a global world and it's all over internet and everything. But uh, initially when I joined, then there was no concept of archaeology in Pakistan and I was the first one who went for excavations. But it's like about 30 years ago. So um, since then, I've been trying to bring in more girls into this field. And they, uh, when they're students, they do come to the field, they do excavations, and of course, under a lot of uh, restrictions. But um, I, I'm so sorry to see that the state of um, girls being in the practical world, they don't join it as a career, because I think, first of all, it's the social pressure and then cultural pressure, which doesn't allow them. Because um, once you're married, then the, you're married to a family in, and it's the whole family which is there, not the single guy. And uh, they don't let you uh, go to such places where you are in a far-off area and, and especially when you're married, your husband won't allow you to go for a month or two months for the field. So um, they prefer that you do a job which is like easily, uh, you know, um, movable. You are in the city so that is another thing, and then plus the security of the girls, they don't, um, I don't know why, but they think that girls are not safe when they are with uh, foreigners. <laughs> That's what I face, and um, still I think that although the boys are much more uh, modern and they are broad-minded in their thinking, but once it comes to a married woman, they don't want this because culturally it is not acceptable that uh, you leave a child behind and you're going in the field or your husband is so cooperative that they take care of uh, the children. So that is one thing. And then socially, nobody accepts this profession as a very nice profession. They think that um, it's not a good profession. The best profession is a doctor, teacher, engineer. So these things are acceptable, but still women archaeologists are not acceptable. You can work in a museum, yes, right, they don't mind, but uh, practical field, uh, nobody allows. And I feel so bad because I sacrificed a lot my personal life, everything, and I thought that the first one has to sacrifice, so maybe there will be more girls. But uh, unfortunately, not yet. Um, we don't have in practical field. Uh, they are there for some time till they are students, till they are not married, but uh, not as a professional. Have you had uh, experiences where girls, uh, even in elementary school or secondary school, come up to you and say, I am so interested in doing this, can you help me? Uh, have there been examples of that where you've been able to actually guide some girls or women into archaeology even for a brief period? Oh, yes, a lot of young girls, even small girls from school and uh, university and college students. They are mostly, they are keen to become archaeologists. But I don't know, somehow the parents don't encourage them to adopt this field. And uh, they convince them that, oh, it's, there is no career in this. And um, they, somehow they're right also because we don't have much opportunities uh, in this field. But then, you know, when you're going far off areas, then you're only with men and 
like um, being a female in this country it's not very easy to be with them and feel them in such harsh uh, environment sleeping at in one house and you know no water and no bathroom <laughs> these kind of, of things also we face so, so this is not very much acceptable i mean girls have tried to come with me when they are students but then they just go away because they don't feel comfortable and then they don't feel that they have much option in this field and the families of course don't approve of this so they just change their mind what about pushback from your male colleagues i mean how do they respond i mean you're obviously at this point an integrated figure in the system i know that because i've seen it but uh do you feel any hostility uh would a woman entering into the field even under your wing wing would there be some hostility on the part of men uh no i don't think so any hostility well when i was i entered there was a big uh big hostility but uh, now the things have changed and the young guys are much better than the ones i had to face but still you know they don't approve of this thing and the character assassination is very common um they don't approve of girls like me you know uh, now i am much older so they don't talk about me but initially it was a big torture for me in the department and i had to fight a case for sexual harassment as well so um it was a big torturous time and i don't think that any girl would fight this much if uh, it's not her passion so as a career or uh, you need to be uh, taking it as a passion if you want to be an archaeologist but not just an ordinary career woman so um yeah i think there will be uh, less hostility not much but the system is as such that no one wants to enter into this But here this is a wonderful undertaking that I have seen physically the establishment of that marvelous uh, State Bank Museum. How did that come about and how were you able to develop this this uh, wonderful building and exhibit basically by yourself as far as I could tell uh, when I toured it and when we spent that afternoon together looking at it tell us a little bit about found, the foundations of uh, the state bank museum because it's a fabulous place yeah when i was uh, away for my post doctorate i had a full bright for my post doctorate so i was in wisconsin so i saw this advertisement and i came in between to pakistan to ask them if I can apply so they told me yes and then there were some people who knew my work from the National Museum of Pakistan so when we are in the department of archaeology we keep transferring between the museum and the exploration branch so i was in the national museum for a long time for about 10 years so they knew my work and uh, they wanted me to come to the state bank and establish this museum because uh, this lady she interviewed all over pakistan and she so everyone so she thought that i was the best person so she uh, when i came back from state she waited for me and then she held the interviews and uh, then they told me to establish a museum but the plan they had was just a small scale museum in the center of the hall and you saw this is a big building imperial bank of india's building it's so, huge uh, being a yeah it's huge So then I thought that who would come to see this uh, small museum uh, in such a high security area. 
so i planned uh, gave a theme to this museum then i collect i acquired the whole collection according to the theme there was nothing in with the state bank at that time and i did at the same time i was doing the conservation and there was no theme so i took Uh, five uh, fresh graduates from visual studies department, and I started training them into different things. And um, that's how I worked. And everybody was upset with me that this is State Bank of Pakistan, and you're taking young guys, and they won't be, oh, their work won't be up to the standard. But I, I didn't listen to anyone, and I trained these young people into different things, and. Uh, so uh basically i did it all alone with these young people and they really worked nice and you saw that how they worked and um when at the inauguration of state bank lot of small scale institutions came to know that uh, they can also have their own museum so they contacted me that they want to have can they have their own museum i mean un- until that time everybody used to think that this is just a government job So then I helped uh, a lot of other small museums, like I did a uh, museum for Oxford University Press, and then I'm involved with the Sin Police Museum and then Mukhi House Museum. So a lot of small scale museums also I'm doing, and I do it free of cost. I don't charge anything for other museums. So I I enjoy doing all that, and I'm happy that there are so many museums coming up because of State Bank Museum. So. I think one of the most marvelous things that you did in that museum is it started out as a numismatics museum and then you eventually yes. added art and archaeology and you made it this enormous exhibit of <laughs> yes. multidisciplinary elements that essentially correspond to a major museum in a western country because i think you know in your position which which is clearly at this point uh, an elevated one uh, you basically have or have taken because you that's your personality you have taken uh, whatever they gave you and then you've developed it and made it bigger mm-hmm. and i yeah. think it's 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 i i suspect that 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 kind of motivation is something that is very unique and is something that would almost be required for a woman in pakistan to really develop an archaeological career you just have to be super motivated is what i can see yeah and plus i had to fight so many elements in the bank also you know it was a continuous fight to convince them that why a museum is because the governors kept changing and every governor was not of the same point of view so at one point it was about to close down so i really had to fight for this museum and now i have made it a fully accessible museum and it's the only museum in pakistan which is blind friendly like visually impaired can come and we have a braille book there and tactile objects and wheelchair and deaf and dumb are friendly so uh, this is this uh, one of its own kind plus you don't miss a single chronological year from 600 BC up to the present in coinage and then stamps from 3000 BC so i i uh, bring my archaeology into everything <laughs> of course and that's how it uh, yeah it's that, that's what made it very interesting i suppose and people enjoy that <laughs> 
And you have a lot of visitors, I notice, all the time. I mean, it's always pretty pretty crowded, including local yeah. uh, residents of Karachi as well as national Pakistanis and foreigners obviously will go to see you and to see the exhibit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's yeah. and it really is a testament of what you've been able to do. Um, do you are you starting to get uh, serious recognition for that museum, and is it starting to establish its own position in uh, in Pakistan as a source of of heritage, knowledge, and information? Yeah, and and you see, um, uh, governors of state bank who were not very much with me, they now they appreciate this, and the bank people have started taking uh, like uh, owning the museum. And plus the public, uh, and especially the educational institutions, we have a special education program for school children. And I have summer camps from three years old uh, to 15 years old. And um, like we are very new. We inaugurated in 2011. And uh, the young children who used to come, like at the age of three now, they are seven, eight, nine. So they become the volunteers, and they have started owning the museum and which I wanted to do, actually. Like, you know, you have worked in Pakistan. We don't have much uh, care for the heritage. But I believe that uh, if I put this thing in these young children at this age, uh, hopefully after 10, 20 years, they'll come up and they will be, you know, helpful for the heritage of our country, which we don't care at the moment. So this is one thing. And then plus, of course, the... Uh, now, by the word of mouth, uh, people know about it, and they have special, specially scheduled in their programs. So they all come to visit the museum, and I'm really happy <laughs> to see that. And uh, we will take another break, and we will return mm-hmm. directly with uh, Dr. Asma Ibrahim. And I think we will be discussing the entire issue of heritage and preservation in Pakistan. Don't go away. We will be back after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you trying to discover how to thrive in business and follow your purpose? Tune in to Entrepreneur Enlightenment with host Irina Benedict. You will learn how to combine practical business strategies with spirituality so you can grow your business with ease. If you've been searching for purpose, for freedom, for fulfillment, tune in to get your questions answered. Listen live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. 
David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Asma Ibrahim is the director of the State Bank Museum and Art Gallery Department in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. We have uh, previously discussed her role as one of the founding and, and probably the most prominent female archaeologists in Pakistan. And one of the topics that uh, has recently emerged on the international scene is the state of heritage and preservation in Pakistan. Asma, I'd like to ask you a little bit of how you're seeing the uh, development of a heritage awareness and uh, preservation contexts in Pakistan over the past few years and where you see it going? Uh, well, um, um, you might know that uh, initially after the independence, the heritage and the preservation and conservation was uh, under the federal government. It was the central government uh, thing and the department was under the central government. And in 2011, the government decided to devolve the, uh, the subject and the department to different provinces. And uh, I must uh, confess that it was not done very properly because the provinces were not prepared for it. Uh, they didn't have uh, paraphernalia. They didn't have trained staff for this. And this has given uh, much uh, setback to the uh, condition of the heritage and the preservation of the monuments, which was already not in a very good state. So uh, I, we were of the opinion that first we should train people, we should hire more people for the department. Like, for example, in the province of Sin, we don't have uh, uh, more than one archaeologist in the whole department. And uh, uh, there are you have seen and you know that how many sites we have in uh, our province. So this is one thing which is very, um, you know, uh, concerning to me and... Uh, as far as the people are uh, uh, aware of the heritage, we see that they are very much aware of it. They want to preserve it. They are very keen. As you witnessed that uh, in the conference, there were more than 1,000 people daily. Uh, but uh, when the time comes for the preservation or for their participation into this, they, uh, they are not there. And a single department of archaeology is not capable of handling all the sites which we have at the moment. And we have some precious sites, um, you know, starting from 9000 BC coming up to Islamic period. So uh, we need to have, like, 
we need to have a department of archaeology in the university unfortunately we don't teach archaeology in karachi university we do have departments in sindh uh, but which is far from karachi so this is one big uh, hurdle one can say that uh, unless we produce more uh, masters and graduates in archaeology we are not able to have them then we don't have many positions in the department to hire people so it's kind of uh, you know interconnected uh, so it need to be done at the government level and uh, we used we need to revamp the whole thing and uh, you know unless we have people who would look after these sites i mean the department is trying their best but um, it's uh, not possible to do it single handedly so it's uh, interrelated thing and uh, after the devolution um, kpk province is doing much better because they had uh, staff with them and they send their young people for uh, phds to foreign and then they have a lot of projects going on and in balochistan we have no department of archaeology and uh, you might know or you must have seen balochistan also every kilometer we have a site and yes. unless we work on balochistan archaeology we cannot find uh, the trace the background of the indus valley you see so it's related to balochistan and um, in balochistan we have no department of archaeology so that's very sad in punjab it is also not that positive thing but uh, um, in sin i told you so well it maybe after few years so uh, it would be better but at the moment i don't see anything except our what about which was very successful what about uh interaction with uh foreign foreign uh researchers i know there is some of that going on there has been for a long time and probably the mm-hmm. uh, development of international cooperative programs with uh, unesco and international agencies they have been uh, there have been some initiatives mm-hmm. along those lines where do you see that going right now well like i myself i'm working with the foreign mission it's um, italian french and pakistani mission and i'm heading pakistani team but uh, you see we need to train more people we need to hire more people in the department uh, we have trained like up to 8 or 9 uh, young persons from the department of archaeology but that's not enough then they need the foreign exposure and initially in the department of archaeology we used to have this uh, agreement that whoever foreign mission is coming and working they should take one or two persons for phds and they should take them with them in their university for training and all and that way the department was established but all those people got retired and now uh, we don't have such agreement with the foreign missions that uh, they are uh, bound to take some uh, few students with them to get them phd's done or some other work uh, in their universities unless we do that uh, i don't think that these young people uh, i mean they have just passed from universities and they are working with us okay they are fine they are very good but they need foreign exposures and they need to see how these teams are established and how these missions are working and how the report writing is we are very weak in writing the reports and doing research so that's one thing which i feel we need to do 
and uh, UNESCO is always short of funds and I I see like many 30-40 years they used to 30-40 uh, years ago they used to uh, give us funding for trainings and all but uh, not anymore we don't get any funding for their trainings what about the recent conference uh, did, in Mahendra Dero that you and I met at? Uh, do you think mm-hmm. that an impetus might be generated from that? Yes, I think it's a very, very positive thing. And this is the first of its kind. Like after 40 years or so, we had such a conference. And uh, the ministry is very enthusiastic. And we are still working uh, whatever we decided to work at the conference. And we have just established a committee, scientific committee for Manjadoro. And then we have a committee for upgradation of different museums. And uh, then they are planning to have uh, different collaborative works with foreigners. So if uh, the minister remains there, I suppose there will be some positive change. But unfortunately, uh, our ministers change quickly. And the head of the department, they are typical bureaucrats. So they had to be transferred. So these are the few things which are actually uh, not very uh, good in the sense to progress. But uh, for Munjudoro, one good thing is that we have a National Fund for Munjudoro and it's there and uh, the committee is there. So like we need these kind of committees for other sites as well. And your own research recently is uh, concentrated, as we discussed during the break, on you're doing some work with uh, strontium isotopes? Uh, yes, um, I'm excavating with this French mission, French and Italian mission at Bambol, which is a site from 1st century BC up to the 12th century AD. So basically I'm working on strontium in glass, the glass uh, pieces which we discovered from them. So which the strontium studies I did initially for my postdoctorate on human teeth to know the provenance and the diet of uh, humans at that time from Indus Valley and from Gandhara grape culture. So the same uh, test I'm doing for uh, glass to know the provenance of glass, whether it was made here or it was made anywhere else. So this I'm doing with Corning Museum uh, US and uh, Professor Bob. He's uh, collaborating with me. So until now, whatever analysis I've done, uh, it shows that the glass was made in Persia. And uh, we haven't found any factory also in Bambos. So we need to do more pieces, uh, analysis. So I'm still working on that. Now, are you able to integrate uh, some students into that operation? Have you been able to uh, bring some interns and local uh, graduate students and undergraduate students into your programs, or is that still a problematic yes. issue yeah. as well? Uh, yeah, we had about 10 uh, young uh, people from the Department of Culture and Antiquities, and they are working with us for the last five years, and I'm happy that they're very much trained, but unfortunately no female. <laughs> All boys, but they are all very well trained now, and we are very happy with their progress. And I think if they keep on collaborating with other uh, foreign missions also, so they will know different techniques of uh, excavation. You know, every um, country has a different kind of excavation plans or working. So they have learned this French and Italian, and I suppose if they work with American missions and the other French missions, so that would be good exposure for them. 
but they are trained for the last five years um, in surveying and in drawing and in digitization and pottery drawing and now we are training them into report writing. So that's good. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, Asma. Can you tell us what your vision is for the future for of Pakistani heritage and archaeology? Hmm, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> I know. I to be very just... pessimist. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, I believe on one thing that, one, I mean, one should do whatever he or she can do at their own end. Because uh, being working in the Department of Archaeology, I faced so many difficulties and I saw so many things which were never happening and I tried my best. But uh, this was the reason that I established my center and I had an NGO for this thing, um, which is in the Exploration and Adventure Society. So I believe that we need uh, more people who can be like us. Uh, a lot of NGOs or the private people should come up, train people, foreign train, and they should join hands with the department. And uh, that is the only way we can progress because it is beyond the capacity of the department to uh, handle everything, you know. So we need more NGOs, we need more conservationists, private conservationists to come up and uh, we need more collaborations. And if we have this positive attitude, I suppose we will be able to handle this. And I want to express my very, very sincere gratitude to Dr. Asma Ibrahim for this magnificent hour that she spent with us discussing the state of women and the state of heritage in uh, and preservation in Pakistan. Uh, we're hopeful that, uh, thanks to Dr. Ibrahim's efforts, there will be a lot more generation of positive excavations and heritage programs and comprehensive integration into uh, the world community of archaeology. It looks like if we have people like uh, Dr. Ibrahim involved, the future will eventually be much rosier than it is. Thank you so much, Dr. Ibrahim. We appreciate your involvement and we look forward to speaking with you sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking me in. Thank you. And for our program, we will see you again next week, and we'll talk to you next week. And thank you so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 